And uh, today we're talking about difference makers. We did last week. We will for the next couple of weeks be talking about difference makers. I invite you to find your place in your Bible at Acts chapter 10. In just a little while, we're going to begin reading in verse 35 through verse 43, Acts chapter 10. This is a series where we're encouraging you to ask God what he wants you to do. Ask God to give you some direction about leadership and things in your life about where he wants you to plug in, where he wants you to be a part. It may be on this campus, it may be off this campus, but the reality is every one of us, God has gifted and intends for us to use our abilities for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I trust that, uh, that you'll be asking God what he wants you to have, what he wants to have you to do as we move forward in this series. I can't remember ever not being in church as a kid. Uh, from as early as I was born, my parents have seen to it that I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night. We were there on Wednesday night. We were there for special meetings. Uh, it was a Methodist church that I grew up in until I was a teenager. We moved outside the city of Atlanta, uh, out to one of the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, I started going to Mount Vernon Baptist Church. And of course, that's where I met Christ as my Savior, and my life was transformed dramatically. But for as long as I could remember, my family has been a part of the church. We have been plugged into the church. I can remember as a boy going with my parents. There was an orphanage in the Atlanta area, and I can remember as a boy at Christmas, my dad's Sunday school class gathering together Christmas presents out of the members of his class. He had about 100 in his Sunday school class. and They would gather Christmas presents together, and one of the privileges that I got, my two older sisters and me, my two much older sisters than me, uh, one of the privileges we got was to be able to go with my parents and with some of the members of my dad's class called the Pioneer Class and to be able to go to the orphanage, for instance, at Christmas. And that was one of the ways that we served. Handing out those kids, uh, to those presents to those kids was something that, that we won't ever forget uh, as long as we live. I, I can remember going on vacation and we would only be want, wanting to be gone the number of Sundays that were you know, just absolutely were a necessity. Uh, we, we would take our vacation. We always went on vacation. We always went to the Daytona Beach area, uh, the Ormond Beach area. We'd rent, my daddy would rent a, a, a little house there, and we'd stay just off the beach. And then, of course, you could drive onto the beach, and we'd drive down onto the beach during the day and you know, have fun at the water and then come back to the house in the evening. And, and that was what we did. But in, in the back of my dad's mind and my mom's mind was always, we're going to get back. We're going to miss as few Sundays as possible. And we did. We missed as few Sundays as possible. And we, we were back at the church, and, and we were serving, and we were working, and we were doing, and we were active, and we were a part. Sometimes it was on the campus, and sometimes it was off of the campus. But for my entire life, I have been working in and around and through and for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the advancement of his church in this world. It's the greatest privilege that, that I've ever had. I can't tell you of anything that I'd rather do in all of my life than to be able to serve God through his church. There is nothing more that I would rather do than that. Maybe that's why God called me to do this. But all of us should have that sense about us that we want to be used of God in, in the cause of Christ through the local church. I don't want to be out just wandering around doing nothing and going through life and being nice to people here and there without a church. I want to be able to do all those things, and then I want to be able to say, come to church with me. 
Come be a part with me. Come join me in the service. Come sit next to me. Come be with me in my class, in my life group. Come be a part of what's going on. I want to be able to direct people back to the local church as imperfect as the local church is, and we're all imperfect. There are no perfect churches. If you find one, please don't join it. You'll ruin it. Please don't join it. You'll ruin it. There are no perfect churches. Every church has its struggles, this one included. Every church has its struggles. Uh, the greatest struggle of this church is the man standing in the pulpit. That's the greatest struggle this church has. But every church has its struggles. But I can't imagine not being a part of a body where I'm locking arms with others and I'm saying, you know, together we're going to be difference makers. Together, we're going to work for the cause of Jesus. Together, we're going to encourage and help one another. Together, we're going to reach out to others. Together, we're going to represent Christ in our community. Together, we're going to do everything we can to get the gospel to as many people as we can. I, I just can't imagine not doing that. I see a generation growing up, uh, they say that less than 50%, the first time it's been below 50% uh, of people are members and a part of local churches statistic just came out within the last few weeks. Less than 50% of Americans are a part of a local church. Many of those aren't preaching the gospel, by the way. But less than 50% of Americans in a generation that seemingly has little or no interest in, think about this, the bride of Christ. This is Christ's bride. You, you are a part of the bride of Christ. That's not the bride of Frankenstein. This is, this is the bride of Christ. This is his glorious bride that he's preparing to meet him one day. Well, we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. He is the groom, and he's made us a part of that. Can you imagine? All of us that love weddings, we love to be, be, be a part of weddings, love to see the, the beauty of the weddings that unfold. Can you imagine that wedding day? When you and I, who are part of the bride of Christ, are taken to be with the husband, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, can you imagine when we stand there before him, we want to be able to say, Lord, we've been working, we've been serving, we've been giving of ourselves, we've been investing our time, we've been trying to reach out, we've been trying to be a part, we've been putting our hands to the plow. We want to do something that makes a difference for your cause. We want to do something that makes a difference for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So many churches today are just languishing. They're just sitting and watching. They're sitting on their hands, and they're watching others perform. This is not a platform for performance. This is a platform to encourage and to edify. This is a platform to instruct. This is a platform to motivate. This is, this is a platform to get people out and involved in what God wants us to do. And we desperately need people who want to be difference makers. You know, sometimes our world seems to me to be like a, a black hole that's sucking all of us into its dark, swirling depravity. This hole to me is filled with all kinds of, of ugly things. And if you watch the news at all, you see these constantly before us all the time in our presence. Things like hate and vitriol and anger and bitterness and outrage the indignity and the inhumanity with which we treat some people, racism and rioting and violence and resentment and revenge and a list of that kind of things can go on and on and on. I've quit watching the national news. It's just too discouraging. And even if it's not as bad as maybe I think sometimes it is, 
The reality is that this is the narrative that's being constantly promoted. And a lot of times you and I as believers in Jesus are dragged into this narrative as if we are a part of this kind of a narrative. Actually, I I would tell you that there's a lot of folks who think we're the cause of the narrative. It's so unfortunate. There's unrest everywhere and people are living without hope and without peace. And sadly, sometimes even you and I get caught up. We don't intend to, but we get caught up in the undertow of this ever-descending darkness that's draining into this dark hole. That's why we have to be difference makers. That's why you and I have to be different in the world in which we live. That's why our attitudes and our actions have got to reflect the Lord Jesus. Our our thought that we try to get people to understand is that we're here to make disciples that live in love like Jesus. Disciples. We're here to make disciples that live in love like Jesus. Because when you live and you love like Jesus, you're making a difference in the world around you. And it's time for God's church for all of us to come together, all of us to recognize the importance of the work that the the Lord is doing through his church, churches like this one, and there are many of these churches like ours, churches like this one that are doing the work of God in the world who are seeking to live and love like Jesus in this world and make a difference in people's lives, people that are drowning, being sucked into that dark hole of depravity. And the reality is we can't save the world from the destruction of its own depravity. God never called us to do that. I know sometimes we think we we should be doing that. God never called us to do that. As a matter of fact, the only way that'll ever be changed is when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords come and he rules on this earth. And there's going to be a day still way future when there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And the curse of sin won't be present. Our purpose isn't to save this world, but there are individuals in this world that we can rescue out of this ever-swirling depravity, drawing them and dragging them and sucking them into this dark hole. We can be a part, the hands and the feet of Jesus, as we were singing a few minutes ago, the hands in the feet of Jesus in the world that's around us. So how do we go about changing this narrative? How do we go about being a, a church full of people who love what God is doing As imperfectly as we may be doing it, we love what God is doing through our church and other churches like ours, and we seek to change the narrative by loving and caring for and living like Jesus lived in this world. Well, I think the answer, at least in part, is found here in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, what we're seeing is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire world. This is this event in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, this Gentile named Cornelius, is within 10 years, it's within a decade of the crucifixion of Jesus, his resurrection and his ascension, and then a little later, 40 days later, his, the, the birth of the church in this world. Within a decade now, the gospel has been mostly a Jewish, a, uh, the church, I should say, has been mostly a Jewish church. Mostly Jews have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but that was never God's intended purpose, that it would be just a Jewish church, that it would be just a Jewish gospel. 
He intended for this gospel to go to the ends of the earth, to both Jew and Gentile. And so within a decade, there's this story about Cornelius. And Peter is going to go to Cornelius' house, this very well-known, devout man, this one who was a centurion of the Italian regiment of this Roman government. And he's going to go to this Gentile's house and he's going to open the gospel way for all Gentiles so that you and I, to to this very day, are, are the recipients of what Peter does in this particular passage of Scripture. Paul ultimately is the one who takes the gospel to the Gentiles, but it's Peter that unlocks the door at this moment for the gospel to go beyond the Jewish audience alone to get to the Gentile audience that it needed to reach. Peter has this very interesting dream. He sees it on three occasions, these animals coming down on what he says is like a sheet that's held on four corners, and it's filled with all of these animals, most of which are unclean animals, animals that no Jew would ever eat, and yet he's being told, eat those animals, eat those animals, and, and Peter says, no way, no, no, nothing doing. I, I'm, I'm a Jew. I've never eaten those things. I'm not going to eat those. That'd be a violation of the law of God. I'm not going to eat those things, but God in that vision was saying, don't call anything that I call clean, unclean. A little later, he gets this visit from these who've come from Cornelius because Cornelius has been praying for somebody to bring the gospel, the good news about Jesus to them. And Peter goes with these men to the house of Cornelius, some 30 or 40 miles where he is at Joppa to where Cornelius is. He goes to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius has got his family together. He's got his friends together. He's got a Gentile audience. He's got a whole group of people that have come together to hear Jesus, excuse, to hear about Jesus from Peter. And Peter explains why he's there because they all wonder, you know, you're a Jew, we're a Gentile, we're Gentiles, you know, what are you doing here? And, you know, he explains the, the vision that God gave him that you don't call clean what, you don't call unclean what God has called clean. And, and then Peter gives this incredible message and there's a phrase in it. When I read these next verses, I'm not going to tell you where the, where the phrase is, but, but I want you to look for it. I'm going to see, see if you pick up the phrase that's so important. If we're going to change the narrative, if we're going to bring light into the darkness, if we're going to save individuals out of this ever-draining uh, pond of depravity, this ever-swirling pond of depravity that's going on around to this dark hole that feels like it's sucking all of us into it, trying to suck all of us into it. If we're going to do that, there's one phrase that is the way we go about changing the narrative. That's the big thing today. You know, This is the narrative. They, they define for us a narrative they want us to believe. The news media defines a narrative they want us to believe, and then they feed that narrative. How do we change that narrative? He says here in this passage, beginning in verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Meaning that means they're welcome to come to him. God doesn't distinguish from the, the Jews from the Gentiles, and the Jews are welcome, but the Gentiles aren't. Anyone is welcome to come to Jesus. Verse 36, the word which God's the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed 
by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he, he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day, showed him openly. Here he is, he's preaching the gospel to these Gentiles. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose, arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be, the, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever, Jew or Gentile, believes in him will receive the remission of sins. And he goes on to tell you that these Gentiles received Christ. They were baptized with the Spirit of God, and they became a part of the church. They were baptized not only by the Spirit of God, by the way, they were baptized in water to profess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what every believer should do. They should all follow the Lord in believer's baptism. But look, did you see the one phrase in those verses that God used to change the narrative? Think about it. To this day, we're talking about Jesus. Even people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus as the Savior, as you and I believe in Jesus as the Savior, even people who don't necessarily believe that way, they believe that Jesus was a good man. They believe that Jesus was a moral man. They believe that Jesus was a great teacher, maybe a great rabbi. To this day, we're still remembering Jesus in the person of Christ. We're still remembering him. And you and I are worshiping him by being here today. Amen? We're worshiping him by being here today. What was it that Jesus did that changed the narrative? It's a little phrase. It's in the middle of verse 38. Since I read this, I've read this passage hundreds of times. But several years ago, I read across this passage, and this phrase stood out to me, and I cannot, I cannot get away from it. In the middle of the phrase, in verse 8, the phrase is in the middle of verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now here's the phrase, who went about doing good. Wouldn't that be an incredible thing to be said about you or about me? That our lives were spent going about to do good. The word good means to be beneficent, to be beneficial to someone else. Just turn a few pages back. Let me give you the idea of this word good. Chapter 4, and look at verse 9. Chapter 4 and verse 9. Well, let's look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a, here it is, good what? A good deed done to a helpless man. That's the good he's talking about. By what means he has been made well. A good deed to a helpless man. Listen to how this word is used in the book of Hebrews. You don't need to turn there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to him. But do not forget... And all of this praise and all of this sacrifice that we're making to God, do not forget to do good and share. 
For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. What does he mean in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, when he says that Jesus went about doing good? It means that Jesus went looking for the needs and meeting those needs. Jesus looks out over the crowd on a number of occasions, and what does it say about Jesus? He had, what's the word? He had compassion on them. Jesus cared about people. Jesus didn't just look at them as numbers or people that didn't have a name or people that were just passing him by. Jesus saw individuals who had eternal souls and who had great needs. And Jesus went about doing good. What if the church of Christ, the church of believers like you and me, and that was the testimony of our lives that we were known for just going about doing good. I mean, there's so much mess in our churches. Understand that. We're all a mess. I'm a mess sometimes. We're all a mess. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be wonderful if we got to be known, not for the messes in our mists, but we got to be known for being the people who in the community and around the world were the people who were doing good. Think about it. Not only was Jesus himself good in the things that he did, but in the name of Jesus, how many good things have been done? How many hospitals have been started because of the name of Jesus? How many care, places of care for those who are hurting and infirmed or maybe even dying are being done in the name of Jesus? How many acts are being carried out in the name of Jesus? Why? Because Jesus set the example. Jesus set the example. He said everywhere he went, he went about doing good. Think about that phrase for a moment. It was a personal effort. It was a personal effort. It says, who went about doing good? I'm not asking that like a question. Who is if I don't know who it is. The who points back to the phrase in verse 38, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, Jesus got his hands dirty in the process. Jesus involved himself. Jesus didn't work by proxy. Jesus didn't work through someone he could hire to do the job, what we might call a deputy. Jesus himself went out amongst the people. Jesus lived in the midst of the people. Jesus was with the people. He showed the disciples how they were to go about doing good. He didn't just tell the disciples to go about doing good. Jesus got his hands dirty in the work. Think about it for a moment. One of the most important passages about the condescension of Jesus is found in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what he says. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Being in the form of God, that's the outward expression of his inward nature, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, something that he had to hold on to and grasp hold of and not let go of. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and took upon himself the form of a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the death, uh, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I skipped a verse. We're going to go back and get it. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus didn't look down from heaven and say, angels, take care of this for me. Jesus went down. Jesus came down and took on him the flesh of mankind in the form of a servant and was willing to give his life even to the place of death. When Jesus says he went about doing good, when Peter says about Jesus that he went about doing good, this was a personal effort. He was involved. We've got to be involved, folks. Somebody has rightly said, not one of the least remarkable features of the present age is the system of doing things by deputy. Provided a man has plenty of ready money, he may recline on the sofa or lull in the easy chair in the greater part of the day and still be a most active Christian by deputy. Does his heart yearn to provide for the orphan or to comfort the widow, to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry? He no longer has to seek them out. He's not compelled to visit the scenes of destitution and misery. He has but to subscribe to a few of the available deputies to qualify himself as a philanthropist. And for the remainder of his days, he is freed from the obligations of Christian responsibility by discharging his duties to others working on his behalf. That's the average church. That's where we are. We pay you to do that. Hey, listen, I'm glad to do that. I love doing that. That's a great thing to be able to do. But you got to understand something. That's not just the pastor or the staff's responsibility. We're all supposed to be about doing good. We're all supposed to be going everywhere, doing good. It was a personal effort. Secondly, it was a willing effort. Nobody had to force the son to come. Nobody had to twist his arm. Nobody had to somehow convince him that this was a task that he should undertake. Think about it for a moment. Jesus Christ came willingly. If you read from the King James Version in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it talks about the determinate counsel. And it almost sounds like when you hear those two words, determinate counsel, it almost sounds like the the Trinity got together one day and they were trying to decide who's going to do this. Who's going to take on this responsibility of the redemption of mankind? And somehow Jesus drew the short straw, and the result was that Jesus ended up coming. But that's not what it means when it says the determinate counsel. That's the predetermined plan of God. Before mankind was ever created, God already knew there was going to be the fall into sin, and he'd already had a plan in place. It was predetermined that Jesus was coming, and Jesus didn't have to be made to come. Jesus willingly came. Jesus willingly came. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It was a willing effort. Thirdly, it was an active effort. It says that he went about doing good. Who went about doing good? 
It was no sentimental contribution. He wasn't imagining in his mind some utopian plan that he wasn't going to work out. He went about doing good actively and purposefully. He didn't wait passively for people to come to him. He went out seeking after the people. His benevolent acts were performed on many people that didn't solicit his help. A lot of those who were the objects of his compassion were outside and off the beaten path. They had to be found. Somebody had to go looking for them. And Jesus went through the cities and the towns and the villages in order to help those, as the scripture says, that lay in darkness in the shadow of death. He came and he went seeking those to whom he could do good. He went about doing good. It not only was an active effort, it was an extensive effort. He went about. He went about. Jesus' ministry is not only in Jerusalem. It was throughout all of Galilee and into Samaria. His work wasn't just in the sacred places, but it was in secular ones as well. His blessings weren't, res weren't reserved for just a specific selected group of people, and there were specific boundaries were enjoyed by one class of people. As a matter of fact, he taught an important lesson. Please don't forget the lesson. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? <clears throat> a man's beaten. He's left on the side of the road. He's going to die if he's left there. A Levite and a priest on two separate occasions come by. They see this man. They pass by on the other side. They want nothing to do with him. And then a Samaritan, there's already a race issue, a Jew and a Samaritan, a race issue already exists. The Samaritan sees him, the Samaritan pours in oil, that's the healing oil to help his wounds, puts him on his own animal, this beast of burden, takes him down to an inn, secures for him the help that he needs, and says, if there's more charges, when I come back, I've got to finish my business, but when I come back, I'll pay those charges. You know what they were asking Jesus while he gave that, that parable? They were asking Jesus, what is a neighbor? Who is a neighbor? Because they wanted to restrict it. It's just the people in Judea. And I can't, I can't really help everybody in Judea. I'm just going to sort of restrict it down to my one little street. And Jesus came and said that a neighbor is anybody. Hear the word? A neighbor is anybody who has a need that you can meet. A neighbor is anybody who has a need that you can meet. It was an extensive effort. Number five, it was a helpful effort. He went about doing what? Doing good. Think about it. He could have come like Moses before Pharaoh, and he could have been calling down the miracles of judgment one after another. He could have come to condemn, but Jesus specifically said that he didn't come to condemn. He came to save. As a matter of fact, will you notice back here in this passage where we read a few moments ago? Before he is presented as the judge, he is first presented as the benefactor. Notice verse 3 again, who went about doing good, who went about doing what was beneficial, what was helpful to others, what was a blessing to others, what benefited others. But now look at verse 42. Before he's introduced as the judge, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he who was ordained by God to be judge, before he was named as the judge, he was named as the benefactor. 
the one who was coming to benefit other people, the one who was coming to bless others. That's the way Jesus came. He came to do good. Remember what happens in Luke chapter 9? You don't have to turn there. Luke chapter 9, remember what happens in that story? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, he's going to go through Samaria, but the Samaritans won't let him. Listen to it. Chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Can you hear James and John, these sons of thunder? Let's get them, God. Let's destroy them, God. Verse 55, and he turned, and he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. His disciples want to call down fire on the Samaritans. Let's get them. They treated us this way. No, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus was teaching his disciples to do. This was a helpful effort. He was doing acts of mercy. He did it for those who were deserving and those who were undeserving. He did good to all at all times and under all circumstances. He was goodness. His goodness was pure and unmerited, and it was free. He didn't do it to climb to positions of worldly influence or power or to serve his own ends, but to show us what he means when he says it's more blessed to give than it is to What's the word? To receive. Not only was it a helpful effort, it was a determined effort. It was a determined effort. Who went about doing good? Who? That's Jesus. Went about everywhere he went. He was working to do what? Do good. To bless others, to help others, to reach out to the hurting, to reach out to the broken. This was a determined effort. I mean, he was rejected at times, but he moved. He kept moving forward, didn't he? He wouldn't be stopped by those that refused to believe in him or sought to destroy him. He persisted through the taunts and the troubles because he was determined to help those that would receive his help. And think about it. Was he respected by the religious leaders of the day for the good that he did? His reputation was that of an imposter or a blasphemer or a demoniac but he kept on seeking the salvation of all of those people. Even, are you with me? Even his enemies. Even his enemies. Who went about doing good. This is the consistent teaching of Jesus to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 25, during the tribulation period, that's a period that's still yet to come, seven years of hell on earth, if you will. When the Antichrist will come to power, he'll rule, he'll set himself up to be, to, to be worshipped himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And the persecution against the Jews will be as severe as it's ever been, worse than it's ever been. And yet Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to one of my brethren, 
You put clothes on their backs to one of my brethren during that period. It's like you're doing it to me. Or, or think about what James said in James chapter 1, verse 27. He says that pure religion consists in visiting the orphans and widows in their affliction. Oh, I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I don't either. Until I get out there. And then I find out that I get blessed more than I bless them. Jesus went about doing good. That's supposed to be the standard by which we measure our lives, that we go about doing good. We test our speech by it. All of you social media people, we test our speech by it. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth or through your keyboard. But that which is good, that which is good to the edifying, to the use of edifying, we test our amusements by it. Am I resting? Am I regaining strength? Am I recuperating myself so that I can go back and do more good? Or am I wearing myself out so that I can't do the good I ought to do? Our businesses are tested by it. Is the general outcome of our business the good of others? Do we carry out our business in a beneficial fashion to help others? This is the way we test the use of our time. Are we investing some of our time, if not a large portion of it, in something that's valuable for eternity? It's the way we test our position in life. Say, I want to climb the corporate ladder. I want to climb the political ladder. Well, with that rise of success, will it make you able to do more good? You get what I'm saying? Y'all don't get it? You get what I'm saying? He went about doing good. 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 And every part of his life was permeated by that purpose. He went about doing good. Listen, nobody wants to hear the gospel from us if we're not doing good. Think for a moment, and I'm almost through. Think for a moment about the people in this world who have been marked as conquerors or as despots. Think about Jim, Jim, uh, Kim Jong-un or Mao Zedong or think about Adolf Hitler. Or if you want to go further back, think about Caesar or Alexander or Napoleon. Do you know what marked the rule of those of the past and even those of the present? It's marked by death and wounds and poverty and sorrow and ruin. But look at the contrast when it comes to Jesus. The one who's the king of kings and the Lord of lords came to bring life and immortality to light. He opened up to men the hope for the present and for the future as well as the way to peace between God and men. He did good to bodies. Think about that. Uh, ask uh, the blind man, those blind people, those with the challenges with their sight when he gave them their sight back. Ask those whose ears were opened. Ask those that were lame that he lifted up and made them to walk. Ask uh, the three occasions where Jesus raises the dead. Ask that widow woman, that, young, that, that lady, not young, that widow woman whose son dies. Ask that woman who reaches through the crowd just to touch the hem of his garment. Ask, ask those lepers. Nobody else wanted anything to do with them. But Jesus reaches out and touches them, heals them. He did good to bodies. He did good by his words. I mean, we're, st we're, we're still talking about his words. You know how long that's been? 
Y'all know how long that's been? That's, you know, that's like 2,000 years. We're still talking about his words. He did good by his words. He did good by his witness against sins and superstitions and traditions. He did good by his patience. Don't pray for patience. <laughs> Tribulation works patience. When you pray for patience, you're asking for trouble. Don't pray for patience. But understand that part of doing good is being patient. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Now look, we can't imitate the miracles of Christ. If you go out and try to imitate the miracles of Christ, please call me. I want to come with my phone. I want to, I want to videotape because you're going to look like an idiot. We can't imitate the miracles of Christ, but we can imitate his benevolent approach and actions toward others. Did you hear that? We can't imitate the miracles of Christ, but we can imitate his benevolent approach and actions toward others. As a matter of fact, if you don't hear anything else, please get this one statement. To be a doer of good should be the shortest definition and the clearest description of what it means to be a Christian. To be a doer of good should be the shortest definition and the clearest description of what it means to be a Christian. And that's the way we're going to change the narrative. As long as we keep living in that same self-centered, selfish world, thinking only about us and how the things that we have will take care of us and we, 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 we pay off somebody else to take care of things we don't want to take care of until we get out and put our hands to the plow and say, I want to make a difference in somebody's life. I want to go about doing good. Let me finish by saying this. What does that entail, preacher? Well, doing good starts right where you are. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go look for a project on the other side of the earth where they, they don't have any water and they don't have any way to have you know, the sustenance of life and their bellies are distended. I'm going to look on the other side of the earth. Don't look on the other side of the earth till you've looked in your own backyard. Doing good starts right where you are. Doing good seeks opportunities for expression. <clears throat> it doesn't wait for opportunities to be dropped in its lap. It goes looking for the opportunities. Who can I do good today? You're going to leave here in a few minutes. You're just going to lay around all afternoon. Well, that's okay. Maybe that's a good thing for you to do. But are you going to ask the question, who can I do good to? Who's going to cross my path today? Who's going to cross my path this week? Who can I do good to? Who can I do something for? Doing good doesn't have to be hard. It can be as simple as a card that's written with a note in it or a pat on the back or a prayer over the phone. It doesn't have to be hard. Doing good is about meeting a need. It's seeing somebody else who needs something and saying, what I have, I gladly give to you. Doing good leaves others better as a result. Doing good leaves others better. As a result, remember what Jesus said, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. It's called the golden rule, right? Not do to others before they do to you. 
do to others as you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. You know why people wanted to be around Jesus and listen to Jesus and wanted the gospel of Jesus? Because they were people who cared and did good and it opened their hearts to the gospel. Want to be a difference maker? Last week we learned from Nehemiah, we've got to work together. We've got to work together. This week, we learned if you want to be a difference maker, you just go about doing good. You go about doing good. Now, I purposefully didn't share any stories in this particular message. Because that becomes, I did good so I could tell you my story. And you lose the reward. Here's the thing. What does it say about Jesus? That he went about doing good. May that be the description, the definition of what it means to be a Christian and the clearest description as well.